Welcome into the Basketball Index Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we are talking about the state of the Hawks. We're talking to Brad Roland, host of the Locked On Hawks Podcast. Brad, how you doing and how you feeling about the state of the Hawks? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm living the dream. It's always interesting this time of year to be covering a team, try to dig in a little bit on what's what's to come. And uh, I feel feel pretty good about the state of the Hawks. Well, I was to dive a little bit deeper than that, but uh, I think it's been a fairly productive offseason. Yeah, let's get into that offseason because they, they definitely made a few moves. Uh, no more Gallinari. Uh, Herder got moved and then they bring in uh, DeJounte Murray. And I feel like that would be, you know, Normally, in an offseason, that might be the move of the offseason. Obviously, the Jazz get blown up and sort of take over the headlines. But uh, Basketball Index loves him and uh, feel I, I feel like he's going to bring a lot to the team. Um, what what are you seeing and, and how do you see him fitting in going into the season alongside Trey Young? Yeah, so the Hawks have been looking basically since Trey Young blew up into a number one option. Uh, the first the first goal for every every NBA team is to find their number one option. And as soon as they find their number one option, they're looking for the number two option. And <laughs> the Hawks went into that mode a couple of years ago. They've been doing that ever since. And they also wanted to kind of find a combination of number two option on offense and also someone who was going to improve their defense on the perimeter. And Murray checks both of those boxes, which is what they're excited about. The fit, you know, it's not like 100% perfect. You wouldn't draw it up in a lab necessarily. But in terms of guys who are available, I agree with you. Like it's a pretty big kind of blockbuster trade for a team that was already pretty good. Not great but pretty good in the Hawks a year ago and uh, I think they're going to fit together it might take a little while to get those guys on the same page necessarily on offense but the skill sets are not like completely out of sorts with each other I think he's uh, going to really help them on defense in a way that will also be very helpful yeah I think Trey Young obviously everyone knows you know he's known for his offense and if you look into the data at basketball index I mean uh, so 100th percentile on offensive load right so he has the ball as much as any player in the league he's 100th percentile in our three-point shooting talent 100th percentile in our playmaking talent where like the offense is is truly through the roof um obviously uh not a very good defender probably one of the worst in the league he's a small guy and he's been used at the point of attack um because I, actually i'm not really sure why i would actually love to get uh your feedback and your opinion on that uh but they bring in murray who quite literally has been one of the best on ball defenders in the past before uh you know he kind of was running the show there in san antonio uh Kind of how do you rate Trey's defense and um, do, do you see his role maybe changing to something like an off-ball chaser and maybe having Murray take over that point of attack? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not a secret to anybody that Trey's pretty bad on defense. I think the Hawks know it. Um, I think he knows it deep down. He's not been great necessarily. I do think there's this, of course, there's sort of a, a long-running discussion about like how damaging a point guard can be defensively. And I kind of find myself, you know, sort of looking around the league, people kind of point to him as the worst defender in the league. And I kind of, I kind of don't believe that. I think that he is bad, and he is maybe the worst point guard defender in the league. But um, in terms of like value to your team, I kind of. I just fundamentally believe that he can't do as much damage as a bad center would do defensively, that kind of stuff. But long story short, you know, to your point before about his role, I think his role has basically been we try to hide him wherever possible because he is so small on top of everything else. Like, you know, a lot of wing defenders, you can kind of hide them just by the fact that they 
have a little bit more size. Trey is both bad and small, and that's what makes it a little bit more damaging. And they haven't had guys to cover up for him. They've had guys who were better than him defensively, your Kevin Herter types, who I think Herter kind of has kind of a bad rap defensively, but he's not a plus defender. And now for the first time in a prominent role, they've had DeLon Wright in the, in the past, who was pretty good defensively, but Murray being a 30-plus minute a game player next to him to kind of take the pressure off on the, at the point of attack is going to help Trey a lot, I think. And then also, hopefully, fingers crossed if you're the Hawks, you'll have maybe a full season of DeAndre Hunter, who's the guy that kind of built their wing rotation around defensively as well. Because, you know, if you don't have Hunter, if he's banged up, if you have Bogdanovich kind of dragging a leg around, he's been he's been uh, less than 100% for a while. Uh, there is There are some times when this defense around Trey has been pretty brutal as well, but he is always the guy they have to kind of game plan around. They know it, but uh, the addition of Murray should definitely help that. Trey Young's one of those players where um... – it's what you know, everything starts and stops with him, obviously, in Atlanta. And I don't really watch much college basketball, but I remember I was on vacation, I was at a friend's house, and he was, you know, tearing it up in college. We watched him play, and it was one of those things where I was like, you know, you have those conversations, especially pre draft, where you're like, well, you know, there, there's there's shortcomings this guy has, but if he can be, you know, the the best three point shooter in the league or the best playmaker, but it's always like hypotheticals. Uh, I feel like Trey Young is a really interesting player because he, he's what happens if all those like bar, you know, you're sitting at the you know at the at the bar talking to someone, all those conversations do come true. Um, so what has that been like to to see play out? Because uh, obviously, you know, we talked pre-podcast. You've been covering the Hawks forever. Uh, what has that been like to see a player where you're like, well, this guy is small. The shot making is crazy. And then it, it does seem like everything we sort of assumed out of him did come true. And I feel like personally, that seems like a rarity for prospects. Oh, it definitely is. You know, I do a lot of draft coverage, too. So it's kind of that perfect sweet spot of that of that year when the Hawks were, were going to be bad. We kind of all knew it. And there was a lot of coverage about Trey in particular as by far the most famous college player that season. And yeah, I mean, the, the book on Trey from even the people that I think pay close attention to the draft was that everyone kind of agreed he had really high upside because of the skill level and uh, the passing and the shooting and all that stuff. And then you get into like the downside was also pretty, pretty scary. Anytime you're talking about a guy who's as small as he is and defensively it is what it is and if the shot didn't translate or whatever. But yeah, like you said, it's kind of been like a 95th percentile outcome for everybody involved, maybe even higher than that. Like he's been really, really good all NBA level last year, even you know all-star level before that. And, you know, for a team like the Hawks that kind of needed that, that injection of talent, also interest, you know, the point about him being very famous doesn't really matter basketball wise, but like just galvanizing the city has been a big thing as well. That's one of the reasons why they wanted to take Trey from all from all reporting. So it's worked out very, very well for them. The conference finals appearance, et cetera. You can certainly argue how good they actually were that season. But finding your number one guy when you don't have a number one guy is the biggest thing. And they they found him. And that's uh, that's, that's kind of uh, half the battle, I guess. So for regular season, this is the first thing I thought when the trade went down for Murray. Because obviously you have Trey Young. I, I said it earlier. 100th percentile in our playmaking talent. Uh, Murray is 97th percentile. He had a, a breakout year from a playmaking standpoint on the Spurs. He's improved every year offensively. So now you go from, you know, Trey Young was the engine that made everything happen to having two really high level playmakers. And I feel like that 48 minutes of always having someone on the court that can make things happen is an extremely valuable thing in the regular season. And I feel like that could really up the Hawks win total, maybe, you know, three, four, maybe five more wins than they would have just based on the talent on the roster. 
Yeah, I think the front office is banking on that too. You know, for the longest time, one of the storylines in Atlanta has been how bad the Hawks have been on offense anytime Trey leaves the floor. And it's not, and people kind of, especially if you're just kind of looking at the casual overall stats, you might think that, you know, Trey is doing something wrong. But no, it's just been that they've had very little behind him. Um, they've had guys who were decent plug and play guys. DeLon Wright last year is a good example of this as a quality player, but not an offensive engine. And this is the first time in Trey's career, really, that they've had someone who's capable of running a pretty good offense when he is off the floor. That's a huge thing. And we'll see if they are how they're going to stagger. And Nate McMillan has kind of been knocked for not being the most creative head coach in the world offensively. Um, you know, kind of how they fit together is one of the big questions. But in terms of when Trey is off the floor in particular, having Murray to be able to kind of flow that second unit offense is going to be huge. And that's one of the reasons they did the deal at the end of the day is like they, they want to not have to assume that they're going to be terrible on offense when Trey leaves the floor. Just being league average or close to it on offense on a second unit would be a huge step forward. It may not sound sexy, but that would be a huge <laughs> leap for them because they've been so bad for so long, basically anytime Trey leaves. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Also, another tidbit, uh, Trey Young, it's a really, really small sample size, uh, but last year he shot 48% on catch-and-shoot threes. Um, so that's 99th percentile for people not uh, familiar like me, just constantly digging into raw numbers of obscure stats. Um, but I, I really want to see Murray set Trey Young up or even get him moving off screen. I feel like his shooting ability um, could really lead to some pretty crazy box score numbers. Uh, let's move on to Clint Capella. He's been there for two years. Uh, your classic pick and roll threat, uh, defensive anchor. What has his impact been uh, his two years since moving over from Houston? It's been huge. I mean, the Hawks kind of had a pretty ugly center rotation for a couple of years when Trey was first getting established. It was a lot of Damian Jones and it was a lot of Alex Len and kind of, you know, Bruno Fernando was around for a while. It was not a great group. And the Hawks dealt for Capella um, when he was injured, actually, with with the Rockets, and he, and he kind of delet, sort of delayed his appearance. But two years ago, in particular, he was just basically transforming. You know, Trey understandably got a lot of the credit, and for good reason. But Capella, kind of single handedly making him a pretty competent defense two years ago, was one of the big reasons why they were able to make the run that they made. And all, last year, he wasn't quite as good. He kind of came into camp with an Achilles injury. It was not 100% for most of the season, and I think got a little bit too much flack for it. But it's probably fair he wasn't quite the same guy, particularly like. Burst wise, athletically, it kind of led to some downturns with his finishing and around the rim and things like that. But defensively, he's just so huge for them. He's their anchor. He's the guy who makes all the calls for them on the glass. He's elite as a rebounder. So uh, that's one of the reasons why they have not moved on from him, because, you know, myself included, we kind of thought at this point they might be clear in the way for Onyeka Kongwu as a former top half of the lottery pick. And he's been really good, too. But Capella has been so valuable to them, both on offense as a pick and roll partner for Trey, a screen setter, rebounder, and also defensively just kind of anchoring them. So he's been transformative. I mean, he's not going to be talk like, talked about in that fashion like a lot of guys might be that are more famous. But he even same things kind of similarly to Trey. When Capella leaves the floor in the last two years, the Hawks have been a different team in the wrong in the wrong direction. So he's he's a very valuable player. We'll see if he sort of holds up again. And as he's sort of entering his late 20s, he's 28 now or something close to that so uh, we'll see how he sort of maybe levels off but he's been very valuable the last two years see now this is one of the reasons i really enjoyed this series i've gone around and kind of talked to all the different teams brad and i fell into a rabbit hole with capella today because like you said um 
the defensive numbers have been really strong. Our D LeBron, which is overall defensive impact, he was third uh, in the league in 2021, which was great. Uh, last year, you know, he said down a little bit, but still strong, 11th in the league uh, in 2022. Uh, but then the thing that I was like, well, like my head was spinning. I was trying to figure all this out. So we have uh, stable points per possession. Uh, as the pick and roll roll man. And he had an A plus in that. Basically, he was pretty much the most efficient roll man in the league when it came to finishing plays. However, we have a rim shot making stat, which takes into account your shot quality and how you perform relative to that. So Clint, obviously playing with Trey Young, has super high shot quality at the rim. And he really struggled this year. He had an F in that. Uh, he's never had below, uh, he's at A and B, he's never had below a B uh, in any of the previous seasons in our database his entire career. So it's really interesting to talk to you to, you know, talk the defensive numbers. I think it's kind of an easier one to line up between analytics and someone watching the game. Also very strong rebounder in our database. But which was interesting, you talking about the injury. Obviously, I don't know that as someone that's just kind of following the team from afar, looking at standings, some box scores, a little tape, you know, games every once in a while. But uh, it was really interesting to see his pick and roll numbers be so strong, yet his finishing be so weak and, you know, dump offs, putbacks, those are where he really struggled. And you talking about him kind of fighting an injury, taking away his burst makes all of that make so much sense. Because I was looking at the, the data, a lot of our things are color coded. And I was like, whoa, why, where's this weird red F coming from? <laughs> so uh, I feel like that explanation like really, really fills in some gaps for me. Yeah, I mean, it's not perfect, but I think that's definitely part of it. The other thing that I would theorize, and again, I'm, I'm guessing here on some level, although I did watch every minute of, of the season last year, um, <laughs> I, I think it's it's kind of funny because he actually shot better from the field last year than he did two years ago. But anecdotally, it did not feel that way, if that makes sense. Like he took he took fewer shots, which is maybe part of that. And I think he kind of lost himself. You know, he's always been a bad free throw shooter. But last year in particular, he cratered to 47 percent. And I wonder if he was maybe rushing a little bit, trying not to get fouled as much. That kind of stuff can creep in there, too, especially when you know you're not quite the bursty guy that you used to be. So it's like, OK, if I go up with this now, am I going to get fouled? And do I want to get fouled? The answer is probably not to that. So he, he took he took fewer free throws, all that fun stuff kind of wrapped into one. But, yeah, I think that the pick to the pick and roll point, by the way. He's such an amazing screener, and obviously it helps to be playing with Trey, who's one of the best in the business at running a pick and roll. But he's a very underrated player, and it's kind of funny that you know Hawks fans get frustrated with Capella because it doesn't always look great. I'm sure you probably understand that. He's, the, he's not the most polished, uh, pretty guy or explosive guy. But he's so crafty and so fundamentally sound that like, you know, just the little things he does very well. But the finishing is a question. That's something I'm circling now is he's apparently more healthy going into the season. It's like, does he get back to where he used to be as a guy who wasn't going to be, again, like making huge highlights, but being a lot more efficient than he was last year? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I feel like we, you've done a really good job painting the picture on Capella. Can you help me out with John Collins? Because this is a guy, <laughs> for some reason, I don't know if it's, if it's me or everybody else, but he's he's eluded me. He's always been a mystery, and I can't quite pin down what he is. So I, I would love for you to elaborate. Yeah, it's a very weird circumstance in a lot of different ways because, number one, Collins has changed a lot as a player since he came into the league. Um for the better, but also I think there's some stickiness to old evaluations on John Collins, particularly for people that are not watching him every day. Um, the most primary one for me is that he came into the league as a very bad defender. He was a very bad defender in college, and it took him a while. And I think that is still stuck to him to where like a lot of the people that don't watch every Hawks game think like, you know, John Collins 
offense first guy kind of really struggles in defense. And at this point, particularly at the four, he's really not a bad defender. He's a, he, I'm not saying he's Draymond Green. He's not, but he's a pretty solid defender at the four. Um, are you going to ask him to play small ball five and anchor your defense? That won't go super well. I don't think if he's the primary back end defender on your team, but I think he's become much better defensively, which helps his value. And also speaking of the aforementioned Capella, one of the big topics when they brought in Capella was how is it going to work with Collins? Because Collins had proven at that point already that he was an elite pick and roll player, but on a team with Capella and even the Kongwu, another guy who's not a shooter right now, they've kind of had to put Collins in a more pick and pop or spacer role because they have two centers that play a lot of the minutes that they can't space the floor. And Collins is capable of spacing the floor. So he's kind of been thrust into this lower usage role. His numbers have gone down as a result of that on a per game basis. And if you don't watch, you're just like, okay, this guy used to average 21 and 10. And now it's like 17 and eight or 17 and seven. Why is that? And it's really just, it's really role-based. I don't really see any sort of decline in terms of like what he's actually capable of doing. It's all a usage thing. And he's become a much more well-rounded player, but also not a guy anymore in the current role that he's in where he's putting up those same stats. And then there's the whole trade thing. We won't, we don't have to go down that entire rabbit hole, but he's been on the trade on the trade block for about two years now. And it's because a lot of ways, Everybody involved from Collins to the front office, they all kind of understand that he's probably being underutilized offensively because of the role that he's had to be in. And the Hawks have dangled him in trade. But at the same time, you're dangling a guy who you're also asking full price for. It's this very interesting situation where, yeah, he's available, but they're not going to give him away. They've had opportunities to give him away for two years. They just will not do it. Uh, And they also want to win now. So it's this whole uh, you know, I don't even. It's like it's like a soup. It's a, it's a stew that's brewing <laughs> around John Collins. Everyone's confused. I, you know, I've been covering this thing every day for years now, and I'm still confused by it. Every time I go on a podcast or any, uh, an appearance anywhere, it's like, all right, what's going on with John Collins? And you kind of have to shrug because it's so many little things put into one. But they do think he's good. They paid him as a good player, uh, and I think he's very valuable to them this year, and almost more so now as well because Gallinari is not back on this team. And for the last couple of years, the Hawks have had this like twenty million dollar backup, you know, high-end sixth man, backup power forward in Gallinari. And now it's John Collins and a whole lot of uncertainty. So even more pressure on him. That's interesting. So I originally started covering baseball early in my career, and you don't have the same types of issues just because like the sport functions differently. So this is <laughs> this is what it sounds like, right? Like, so you have a log jam kind of as the pick and roll guys because you have a lot of guys who can do that. And I feel like in basketball, it seems like the guys with the wider uh, skill sets sometimes get punished into doing things they're not the best at kind of what you talked about because the other people can't do the things that they can do um, it's a really interesting thing because I mean I guess that does happen in football a little bit depending on your position but uh, it's just interesting covering different sports and seeing the problems that arise from roster building and I feel like the NBA is maybe the most unique because you have such few slots in comparison to other sports where there's guys like John Collins where I, I, you know I haven't been able to figure it out at all I feel like your information has been very useful but even in that answer you're like it is a confusing answer <laughs> it, it, it really is and listen like even going back to where I you know this is a guy who averaged 22 and 10 in the NBA this happened two years ago or three I guess three seasons ago now But he was playing that whole season next to Jabari Parker or Dwayne Dedman or Damian Jones or Alex Lynn, and they were all spacing the floor, and they had Collins beat their primary role guy. If you paired John Collins with a shooting center and just said, okay, John, you're our pick-and-roll guy, 
the numbers would follow. He's one of the best pick and roll players in the league. It's just like, to your point, on, on, on a basketball team. And, you know, he's a hard worker. He kind of put his head down. I'm sure he's not loving scoring less points than he used to. But I think the best way for them to win with their current roster is to have him be more of a do-it-all guy than it is to be him be an every-down pick-and-roll guy. And I think he probably knows that deep down. But at the same time, these guys are all human. And when you when you know what you can do and you're probably being underutilized, there's that, there's that part of it too. So, yeah, it's really odd. And I think he's – I mean still now people asking me on every podcast or every radio hit that I do is like, is Collins going to get traded this season? And it's like my answer is – they can't afford to trade him. They don't have anybody behind him. <laughs> like they have Jalen Johnson, who they, who they drafted two years ago, I guess well, a year and a half ago now, but he's unproven. And this is a team that's trying to win. And Collins is really important to that. All right. That, 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 yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad I got to talk to you to, 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 you know, dig a little deeper there, but man, that is, I guess that'll definitely be something to watch because that's one of the more, it feels like unique situations uh, around the league. Uh, let's talk about Deandre Hunter. This is a guy I feel like, I don't know why Twitter really likes to hype him up a lot. <laughs> um, and I, I'm going to be honest, this is a player I'm not super familiar with, uh, you know, kind of lower down on the roster. Can you give me a quick scouting report on him and where he is at? I get he's going into his age 25 season. Yeah, it's year four coming up for Hunter. And, you know, this is a guy that the, the Hawks traded a lot for, which is part of it. He was also a very famous college player who was, you know, n- number four overall pick, played on a national championship team. So he had some college hype coming in. And uh, also he's he's the prototypical on paper, six eight two way wing that every team in the league wants. So that's three. That's three things going in terms of the hype direction that you just referenced. Like all those things go towards the hype that you might have seen or heard about Hunter. And also, his second season, he only played twenty three games, but he had the he had a, the best month of his career as in his sophomore season. He had a great great shooting month. He had a great efficiency month, and everybody kind of like, okay, here we go with DeAndre Hunter. Then he got hurt. And missed most of the season. And then last year, in year three, he really struggled. Now, he wasn't terrible, but his efficiency went down from two. He didn't get to the line as much. He didn't rebound at all. He didn't pass very well. It was like kind of the nightmare scenario while still being on the floor for you know more than half of the season. But at the same time, like everyone agrees – He's a super valuable player in an archetype because he's a pretty good defender. He's really big. He can shoot it. He can dribble a little bit. He can get his own shot a little bit. So there's so many boxes that you can check. but And if you don't watch him every day, you would think that, all right, this guy made a leap in his, in his third season or whatever. And he had one really, really good quarter in the playoffs as well against the Heat late in that series that everybody's watching. It's national TV. I think he had like a 20-point quarter. And people that haven't seen him play all year are thinking, oh, this guy's a former top five pick. He must be awesome. But if you watched him closely, he really didn't have a good year. And he was also banged up. He had a wrist injury. He had a back injury, all this little stuff. But at the end of the day, this is a huge year for him both contractually, he'll be a free agent at the end of the year. And because look at this Hawks roster, he's the only guy at the three that has the prototypical size and defensive projection that they need. So like, it's a huge year for him. I've been saying he's the X factor on this team for a while. He's not as good as Trey or DeJounte or even Collins or Capella, but given who's behind him and given the position he plays and how important that role is at the highest level, he's got to be good for them. And if, if he's the guy he was in year two, they're going to be in great shape. If he's the guy who was in year three, they're going to have some questions on the wing. So it's, it's that big of a season for him and the team. All right. Uh, last question before I get you out of here. Uh, what is the best case scenario for this team and how does it happen? Uh, I think the best case scenario is probably like, I don't know, three or four seeds, something like that. I'm not saying it's going to happen. They won't be picked there. But I think that the Hawks, this, this team could easily win 50 games plus, and it would not shock me at all. 
the, the pathway to doing that is to replicate last year's offense. They were number two in the league in offensive rating last year. Um, no matter where you look, they were a top five-ish offense, um, baking, all, baking all that stuff in. But they were so bad defensively that it dragged them down to the slightly above 500 level that they were actually at at the end of the season. So the, the combination is basically – you know, keep that top five offense and then be, you know, the 18th best defense in the league rather than the 26th or the 27th best defense in the league. That's a pretty good foundation. And the way to do that is to have Trey Young be Trey Young, have Murray kind of fit in on the offensive end of the floor, boost our defense, and then get a lot more from Hunter and maybe more health from other guys on their roster. You know, by the end of the season last year, Collins and Capello were not um, not necessarily at full strength. They didn't have a ton of injuries, but they just had enough injuries on the margins. They had some bad moments from Cam Reddish along the way. He's not, he's not going to be on this team anymore. So um, I think it's really a situation where they were probably better than their record last year. Their ne- their point differential kind of reflected that. And bringing in Murray is a is a big inclusion. So if they were to, if they stay healthy and Trey repeats himself and they play better defense, this could be a pretty scary, you know, top three, top four seed in the East. If it goes wrong uh, in a lot of different ways, like if, you know, if something happens to Trey or if they get a, a sort of a key injury or two, the depth is a little bit worse than it was a year ago, which is kind of scary for them. So there's a pretty decent range for this team, um, even with, even with it sort of regard to reasonable health. But I do think that if all came together, you might see what people thought they might have been last year going in, coming, coming off the conference finals. People kind of thought, all right, maybe it may be a top three or four seed for them. And it didn't happen last year, whereas this team, I think, actually could be that if it, if it goes well. All right. I feel like that answers the question on what the state of the Hawks is pretty good. Uh, Brad Roland, thanks for coming on. Uh, what is your Twitter handle? I am at BT Roland. It's B-T-R-O-W-L-A-N-D. Uh, usually talking Hawks on there. A lot of NBA stuff as well. Some some baseball sprinkled in. So we talked about baseball earlier in the podcast. I do, I do cover the Atlanta Braves as well. So uh, a little bit of a smorgasbord, but a lot of basketball in season at BT Roland. All right. And again, he is the host of the Locked on Hawks podcast. Brad, anything else to plug? No, the Locked on Hawks is great. If you want to listen to to stuff about the Hawks every pretty much every day, you know, five, six times a week during the season, three or four times a week in the offseason. I'm also a writer at Diamond Uproxx covering the NBA and college basketball and the NBA draft as well. So that's something to check out if you are a basketball fan across the board beyond the Hawks. But uh, I do appreciate you having me and uh, happy to do it anytime. Wow, you are a busy man. Uh, Thanks for getting us up to speed on the Hawks. My name is Taylor, and that'll do it for this episode of the Basketball Index Podcast.